Hi, podcast listeners. Kyle here. A lot has happened since our last series, and, well, in it as well. We partnered with the University of Mobile in Mobile, Alabama, moved our studio on campus, received some new fancy equipment, got a new logo, lots of changes. All so that we can bring you, the listener, a better show. We had to take a short hiatus, but we're back, and we're really excited to start our conversation on the Sermon on the Mount, which is our next series. So if the show has a new look and a new sound, don't worry, it's still us. Thank you for your faithful listenership. We hope this show continues to be edifying for you. You're listening to the So What Podcast, where we discuss biblical and theological topics to ask the obvious question. I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by Matt O'Reilly, Travis Buchanan, and Lanier Wood. The So What Podcast is recorded in partnership with the University of Mobile, a Christ-centered academic community providing liberal arts and professional programs on campus and at a distance. You can find out more information at www.umobile.edu. If you enjoy the show, you can help the podcast grow by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, today on the show, we are delighted to have with us Dr. Jonathan Pennington, who is currently the Associate Professor of New Testament Interpretation and Director of Research Doctoral Studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He received his PhD in New Testament Studies from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He has written Heaven and Earth in the Gospel of Matthew and Reading the Gospels Wisely, both published by Baker Academic. In addition to these works, he has also written commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that we will be discussing today, titled The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. Dr. Pennington is going to help us kick off our new series on the Sermon on the Mount. So, Dr. Pennington, it is a joy to have you on So What Podcast. Thank you. It's always a delight to talk to people, especially about the sermon. So thank you. The Sermon on the Mount is perhaps one of the most well-known parts of the Gospel of Matthew, if not even the Gospels themselves. Most people, whether intimately or vaguely familiar with the Bible, will recognize phrases and concepts from the sermon, like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or you are the salt and light of the world, or judge not, lest ye be judged, and perhaps most famously, the Lord's Prayer. Yet, despite being so well known, it can also be very misunderstood. Jesus says things in the sermon that, on face value, seem impossible to achieve, or extreme, or even strange. He tells us that our righteousness must exceed the Pharisees, who essentially were so-called experts in righteousness in their day. Jesus tells us that harboring anger in our hearts or looking lustfully at someone are both tantamount to murder and adultery, respectively. In fact, on that note, Jesus recommends that we pluck our eyeballs out if they cause us to lust. Now, Dr. Pennington, in your book, The Sermon on the Mount in Human Flourishing, you give readers a framework or lens through which to read and understand the entire sermon. The framework unfolds itself as we ask the question, how can we achieve true human flourishing? The sermon itself is essentially answering that question from the perspective of, as the Apostle Paul reminds us, the one by, for, and through whom all humans were created and can experience flourishing in itself, that is, the Lord Jesus. Now, Dr. Pennington, I thought it would be good 
if we would just first situate ourselves in the Bible's concept of human flourishing before we discuss the Sermon on the Mount. So, what is human flourishing according to the Bible? That's a great question and one that I've been thinking about a lot for the last five years or so, but before that, I didn't, and that's an important part of my answer. The short answer to that, to give it a little framework, is that what I came to realize is that every religion in the ancient world and really today, every philosophy was really answering or trying to answer that question, what is true happiness? What is human flourishing? The reason human flourishing is a good way to describe it is because happiness is probably too shallow of a word now for us. It just means temporary emotional positivity. But true human flourishing is the idea that's even beyond the Bible. It's in all of human culture of what's the sort of the good life, the true place of contentment, and long-lasting satisfaction, which will include emotional up and down, but an overall sense of satisfaction. So that's kind of the big question, what, you know, what is human flourishing? And then you're asking, what is human flourishing in the Bible? Well, I start that way to say a big part of what I've come to see in the last five or six years of working on this is that the Bible actually cares about that question. It is offering an answer to what human flourishing is. The answer it gives is both similar and dissimilar to the rest of the world. And I can get into that more, but I have a feeling this first question, you're just wanting to kind of get a general answer. And I'd say generally that God cares about human flourishing. He cares about humans entering into shalom, if you want to use an Old Testament word for it, or true peace, if you want to use a New Testament word for it. And then we can maybe explore that more beyond that. But I'd say that's how I'd want to start is to say the Bible cares about humans experiencing this kind of deep, long-lasting contentment or flourishing life. If you want to direct the follow-up on that, or if that's enough for just a second. A question rises for me. You mentioned that this is something that all world religions and different philosophies have their own approach to the question of flourishing and, and the way that they look at human flourishing. If human flourishing from the perspective of the Sermon on the Mount involves bringing people rightly in relation to God through Jesus Christ, then to what extent, if any, do people in other religions experience human flourishing in their lives? Yeah. So to what degree can they experience human flourishing? Yeah. So there'll be more to say about what that human flourishing looks like, but I agree with you. Ultimately, the only true and lasting and eternal human flourishing will be that which is oriented toward Christ, the king, the king philosopher, and his coming kingdom, which is the space and place in which full human flourishing will occur. Nonetheless, in the same way that Christians have always understood there being a relationship between common grace, if you want to use that category, which is used in the form kind of construction a lot, but whatever you want to call it, God does love everyone. And as the Sermon on the Mount itself says, God causes his face to shine and his reins to flow on the just and the unjust, right? So even though true human flourishing, according to Jesus, is going to be reserved to those who are oriented towards his coming kingdom, that's not to say all of humanity can't know a taste of that, even in the same way that all of humanity knows beauty and goodness and love and all these things that we have in measure in the world because we're all God's creatures made in his image and he is gracious to all of this creation at a deep level, right? So I would not want to in any way 
have the idea in our minds that you can't really flourish unless you are a Christian. I would say ultimately and deeply and truly you can't, but it's not as if human flourishing is something that no one besides Christians experience, at least temporarily. That's good. And one of the examples of this that I found throughout your book is the virtue tradition of the Greeks and the Romans. Could you explain for us a little bit about that? And maybe it would offer us a specific example of where we see some flourishing, but not the fullest expression of human flourishing as God desires it. Yeah, good. Yeah, part of the argument of the book is that uh, to to fully understand what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand some about the cultural encyclopedia is the language I use, but from Umberto Eco's idea, but the, just the cultural air and water uh, of the day, and that day for Jesus is a time of a mixture of two cultures that's already been happening for about 250 years. And we call those, the two cultures could be described as Judaism on the one side and the history of Israel and Greek and Roman culture on the other. And really first century Judaism and first century Christianity is the child of both of those worlds. Um, and so I'm, and then especially the gospels, which are written in Greek some years after Jesus are even more clearly speaking from and into that, Greek Jewish combination world. And so I use that to talk about how that influences what Matthew must have been doing and what Jesus himself was doing. And that for us as readers, we should understand about the Sermon on the Mount. And that's particularly that the language and the images and the vision that the Sermon on the Mount is giving us is deeply Jewish. Its roots are, you know, profoundly Jewish. But it is speaking into and from this culture that has already talked a lot about what human flourishing is. The entire Greek and Roman philosophical tradition, that's what it was all about. Greek philosophical tradition, including you know Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, the big three that we always think of, but many, many others, they were very much about this question. What is the nature of true happiness? How do you achieve it? And even though there are differences between their answers, what's consistent about their answers is that the only way to experience true human flourishing is through giving yourself to a life of discipleship. That's actually language they'd use in one sense of virtue, training yourself, following a master, a wise person whose practices you model and whose teachings you reflect upon. And then living a life of righteousness, living a life of virtue is the only hope to experience true human flourishing. And that's opposed to hedonism, which would say it doesn't matter. There is no, you know, there's nothing but just living for pure pleasure. All the philosophers are saying, no, that is not true. And we need to give ourselves as individuals, especially as a society, we need to give ourselves to training our children to be virtuous, living virtuously ourselves. From the king down to the slave, everyone needs to pursue virtue because that's the only hope of flourishing. I bring that up to say, I think, of course, Jesus isn't just a Greek philosopher or something. He's more than that. But Jesus himself is in that culture, and Matthew is certainly in that culture, and they're presenting an alternative to that. But as I said before, it's not an alternative that is entirely different. It's much overlap, much continuity, but some discontinuity as well, which you know we can explore. But I'll pause and see if you want to sort of cl- get anything clarified on that. Or 
talk about what I just said there. One thing that comes up, we're kind of circling around these ideas that human flourishing matters in Scripture, that Jesus is the, the central reality where flourishing is found. But you also mention in the book that there's a latent fear among evangelicals to talk about flourishing. Why is that? And how can pastors listening help their people overcome that fear? Yeah, that's great. I think there really is. I mean, I, you know, it's been a journey for me too. And I think the fear, I don't remember exactly what I said in the book, so feel free to remind <laughs> me. The ones that come to mind, I think we as evangelical Protestants, one fear is that if we talk about human flourishing or happiness, we're afraid that that might somehow maybe diminish the strong emphasis that our tradition has on sin and forgiveness. I don't think any of these fears are founded, but I understand them. That is that part of the evangelical Protestant tradition is very much emphasizing that humanity is sinful and broken. And though there's nothing in that that would inherently prevent us from talking about human flourishing, I think in that case, it's kind of just like a habit. Like we're not we're not used to talking positively. <laughs> you know, I mean, for us, the gospel is not something so positive as it is kind of a remedy from a negative, you know. And so one of the, I do mention this in the book, I know one of the kind of Rorschach, Rorschach kind of tests I do with students a lot of times is I say, okay, I'm going to say a word and I want you to tell me the first word that comes to mind, the word association kind of thing. And so here's the word, humanity. What's the first word that comes to mind for you? Well, I think for a lot of evangelicals, maybe especially in the Reformed tradition, but all, I think, sinful. I'd be curious if you guys would answer what you came up with in your heads, but I think sinful is maybe the first word that we think of, we think of humanity. And I would suggest to you, that's a true word to think of, but that's not the first word the Bible would come up with. I think the Bible would come up with the answer beloved or made in the image of God or something like that. And I think this is part of our sort of Reformed tradition or our Protestant tradition, I should say, is that we've rightly highlighted that aspect of humanity, but I wonder if we've sort of highlighted it to the expense of what the Bible also says, that God actually cares about us flourishing and being happy, right? So go ahead if you want to ask a question on that. I've got other fears that I think come up, but maybe you want to respond to that one. Well, one of the things that excites me about your work on the topic is, I don't know if we mentioned before, I'm a United Methodist pastor, so okay. come out of the Wesleyan tradition. We talk a lot about what salvation looks like beyond forgiveness in kind of classical Wesleyan circles. And you would catch Wesley saying things like holiness ultimately is true happiness. Yeah, and so I was, right. I was really, as being part of a tradition that's tried to be offer some corrective to the broader evangelical tradition mm -hmm. to say that salvation is more than forgiveness, that there is this transformative thing that the Spirit of God wants to do to produce holiness and ultimate happiness in you. I'm encouraged by your work, so I appreciate that. But talk to us about the relationship between holiness and happiness. Well, let me say, I did read Wesley on the sermon, even though he probably doesn't appear very much or certainly not enough in the book, just that's not intentional or something. But yeah, he's certainly one who did see this, as did Edwards and other people too. I mean, it's not even just in the Wesley, but certainly there, it's somewhat of a generational thing. I mean, an era, an epic thing, because they're, I think we've just particularly lost it today. Holiness and happiness? Yeah, great. I would say that for Matthew, this is very important because for Matthew, a major theme, including in the sermon, is what is true righteousness. In fact, I argue in the book that the righteousness that's greater than the 
scribes and the Pharisees really drives, that's in Matthew five seventeen to 20, really drives the whole message of the sermon that we have to have a righteousness that, that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees. And that righteousness is not talking there about imputation or something. It's talking about whole person behavior that accords with God's coming kingdom. So being a whole person that not just your outside, but also your insides are oriented toward God. That's what holiness or righteousness is according to the Sermon on the Mount, I think. And I think it relates exactly to happiness or flourishing because that's the whole point, that the only way to experience true human flourishing, Jesus is saying, is by being a righteous person. Not righteous in the Protestant categories we first think of, like, oh no, earning your salvation or something. We're talking about what Matthew means by righteousness, which is what we might call holiness or might call you know, just wholeness or something like that. So, um, so I think those are deeply connected is the point. Well, that sheds light on the way that we need to talk about sin as well, uh, in that even though human beings come into the world in a sinful state, that sin in and of itself is not essential to true humanness, at least in the sense of God's ideal state of what it means to be a human and made in his image. We need rescue from sin in order to be made holy. Yeah, well, we're getting deep theological stuff here, <laughs> right? Theological anthropology. Yeah, I am no smack theologian, so I'm, I'm hesitant to speak overly confidently about, I'm sure there's some nuances to that theological anthropology question that I'm not an expert on that are important. But yes, I, I think I could affirm that, that our essential nature as humans is the image of God, right? And then that image is cracked or broken. I like Scott McKnight's language, we're a cracked icon, you know, using mm. the Greek word for image that becomes the English word icon. I, I like that. It's a cracked icon, a cracked image, but it is the image of God. And that God is very much about restoring us fully back into the image of God, which is now seen in the Son, who is the ultimate and final image of God. So this is precisely what Paul talks about in Second Corinthians, for example, that the gospel, the message of salvation, is described as being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. That's an entirely beautiful and justified way to describe what salvation is, just as much as the way he describes it differently in Romans as justification by faith. I mean, those are both different metaphors for the reality of God redeemingly relating to humanity. So I would say that transform from image to image is a, is a very good way to get at this sort of what God's about in his relationship to us as humans. Mm-hmm. 